O God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be wondering why I have a beach ball and toilet paper up here. And if they go together or not. Okay. Well, I kind of already told you what this is, but what is this? Are you sure? Yeah, it's a beach ball. Good job. You passed the test. Just had to make sure. But what is this? Is it a beach ball? Yes. Is it? If I was to puncture this beach ball, this nice, usable beach ball that Randy can catch, maybe. Oh, you did. Good. Um, it would then look like this. And then I wouldn't be able to reinflate it because it's punctured. Would this be a beach ball? Yes. Okay, you answered like good Americans, because Americans would answer that way. That is not how an ancient person would answer that question. You don't have to hold that all night if you don't want. <laughs> Similarly, this is toilet paper. If you were to drop this into the toilet, which I once did, I know, how does that happen? I was changing a roll from one side of the toilet to the other, but it didn't make it to the roll holder it fell in. I had to pull it out, and what did I do with it? I let it dry out on the counter so I could put it on the holder later. No. <laughs> oh, right. You, okay. You did what I, I did what you would have done, is I threw that right into the trash can a little bit beyond the toilet paper holder, right? That's what you would have done, right? I sure hope so. Um, so question is, I pick this up. This is toilet paper. If I drop this into the toilet water, is it still toilet paper? Yes. Yes. Okay. You're answering like an American. Good job. However, would you use this like toilet paper? No. 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 So now you're inconsistent. Is it actually toilet paper? Yes. Yeah. Okay. The use has changed. Chase is getting down to the basis of this. You say this deflated ball is still a beach ball. That's the American answer. But would you use this as a beach ball? No. Yes, I would. <laughs> no, no, remember, it's punctured. You would patch it. Yeah, Chase is just not going to go buy a 50-cent beach ball. He's just going to do everything he can. Yeah, no, this doesn't work as a beach ball. Okay, so I'm going through this to point out a concept of the way we see the world versus the way biblical writers and ancient people beyond biblical writers, um, even into the early years of our, of our church, um, how they saw the world. They would have said that that beach ball, when deflated, is no longer a beach ball because, as Chase clarified, its use has changed. Or the toilet paper is no longer toilet paper because its use has changed. Now, we would say, typically, no, it's still what it is. So what we're doing is we are looking at components in their materialistic realm. The, material, the matter of the toilet paper hasn't changed. It's still its same matter. It just added water or something, right? Uh, same with the beach ball. The matter is still there. The material is still there. But ancient people would have said, no, because its function changed, 
It is no longer what it was. So they defined existence by its function. We define existence by its material proportions. So, yes, you were, I'm not saying you're wrong. Your toilet paper that's now in the trash still exists in our worldview. But if you defined existence by function, the toilet paper in the trash no longer exists because it is no longer capable of doing its original job. Makes sense. Okay, now apply this one more way to human beings. If we stop doing what we were made to do in a biblical worldview, do we exist? We have stopped functioning for the purpose of which we were created, so therefore we no longer exist. Now, you would push back and say, of course we exist, and Christ came to save us. Yes, materially we exist, and of course we didn't go into oblivion, so he came to rescue us. However, do we exist as humans? Well, if God created us to worship him, to image him to the creation, and to work the creation on his behalf, then when I have sinned and am no longer capable of that function, then I no longer exist as a human. I exist as something less than human. I have now fallen beneath what God has made me to be. I don't exist as the creature he made me. So I have gone into the direction of non-existence. Okay. Non-existence is, is the way, is one of the ways you can look at the plight of the human being. Is that we had existed when Adam and Eve were given all of this creation to go and create like God, stuff out of the creation and to bring it to him and as an offering of worship on the Sabbath day and to commune with him at the tree of life on the Sabbath day and then to go back out of the next day and to keep on doing this worshipful act, work and then coming and offering it to God and communing with him, work and offering it to God and communing with him. But sin cut us off from this communion with God. It cut us off from the tree where we can eat with him. It cut us off from the ability to use the creation as the image of God. And instead, we fall into something that is now equal to the rest of the stuff. Like, we battle with the creation now. And we don't have access to the life of God. We have ceased to exist in the way that God made us. This is what sin led us to. Sin led us to death the Bible says. Remember, God said, when you eat of the tree, you shall die. Okay, they didn't physically die right away. Of course, that does come. What happened is they died in their function, in their role. They no longer operated as the life that God made them to operate as. They died from that. Now they're less than. They're moving into a realm of non-existing. And because of this being cut off from the life of God, you will eventually die. You and I, humans, are not eternal, so our life will run out. This is the mess that we were in, and this is revealed fully in this narrative about Lazarus. It doesn't surprise anybody that Lazarus dies. 
We know that people die because we are in this plight. So what Christ does is while we are moving downward into this state of non-existence and death, he comes all the way down into that same realm. He enters into death and non-existence by dying. He goes to where we are headed. He frees those who are in death. He goes ahead of us who have not yet quite gone to death itself and empties this and makes a barrier on this, shuts those gates so that no, we don't go in there anymore. He went into non-existence to bring us back into existence. This is what he did. So that we can, the purpose of this is so that we can function the way that he made us to function. He's giving us the very life we were created to have so that we can do the things we were created to do. He took this punctured volleyball, punctured beach ball, and he was, he allowed himself to be punctured. He wasn't going to go this way anyways because he wasn't in the same state as we were. He allowed the puncturing on the cross so that he could come to this deflated beach ball and then say, because I gave myself up and I'm not doomed to die, I can say, I'm not going to die and walk out. (laughs) Only he can do that. We are enslaved to death because we owe death our lives. So Christ then takes this deflated beach ball. He patches up its chase being our Christ because he said this is what he would do. He, he patches up the, the, the hole that sin has left on us and then breathes his life into us and brings us back into what we were meant to be and do so that Billy can catch, yay, Billy can catch the beach ball and throw it back. Yay, now the human being is alive. It's functioning. It exists. This is what Christ is doing to humanity. And this is what we see in this story. It's a very long story. Um, but the specific part about Lazarus dying and coming back to life is a, a much shorter part of it. This is what he does for us humans. This is what he does for us. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the beautiful things, um, so what we have in this story is that Christ comes all the way down all the way down, not just to earth, but when we just recited how um, even those under the earth will confess that he is Lord, he comes all the way down to reach humanity in its death, in its non-existence, to breathe into us existence and life. He who is the eternal life, the bestower and creator of life, comes all the way down to where death has taken away life, so that we can be moved from non-existence to existence. So that we can be moved from death to life. You see what that is? He comes all the way down so that we can go from death to life. He came all the way down so we can go from death to life. And this is why our um, heritage, although we've, got, we've gotten very much away from it, I think as it creeps us out as like super religious people we don't relate to, do it, but this is why ancient Christians and some current Christians cross themselves, is because this is what it means. Christ came all the way down to make me from death to life. This is the idea of that. So we enact the gospel in that symbol, and we remind ourselves that this is now the life I live in Christ. Um, 
it, it is it is quite a tremendous story. So um, when we read here in, in, in John 11, verse 38, of course, you, you heard from Tyler's reading that Jesus seemed very unconcerned about Lazarus being sick and he's about to die. And she's like, well, he's probably thinking like, well, I could heal him if he's going to die anyways. Um, what I want to do is I want to show the world and there was a scene here. There's a lot of people that witnessed this, and it caused a stir in Jerusalem. If you were listening carefully, what he does here causes a stir. He wanted to make a statement. This is his seventh miracle in John. It's, a, it's very purposefully placed. This is right before he goes into Jerusalem. Um, so he lets Lazarus die. He lets Lazarus die because Lazarus is becoming, if you allow me to use language, he's becoming a parable about us. That's not to say the story didn't happen. That's not what I mean. It's just that Lazarus is a symbol. What he goes through is what we go through. So um, he allows Lazarus to die. And then in verse 38, this is where we see the little episode of Jesus, his miracle. Then Jesus deeply moved again. Oh, you know what? Actually, I want to go up a little bit higher. And I want to go to verse 32. Because I think this is uh, this is worth noting. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here on time, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, so she's saying this with tears streaming down her face, because this is what death has done to the human race. It has brought despair, mourning, loss. We don't live the way we were meant to live. Death rips lives apart. It rips relationships apart. And it doesn't only do that when a person perishes from this earth, but it does so in the way it works into our hearts through sin and corruption and the ways that we gossip against each other, create drama where it doesn't exist because we have insecurities. We rip lives apart. And she's weeping and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping. And it says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. We're seeing a whole story of the gospel in miniature. Death entered the world and we weep. And Jesus was moved with pity for us. And so in verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And now Jesus wept. So he enters the full, he, he enters fully human with us and he weeps and says, I see what you're going through and I too will enter into death on your behalf. And so he weeps and then uh, the Jews see, say, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Of course. Now, in verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. This is really amazing. Um, he earlier had raised a young girl from the dead. He came to her bed, raised her by the hand, and she came to life. That was Jesus bringing someone to life almost in like a clean manner. It's like removed from the actual realm of death. But here Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus 
and we know it's a cave that there's a stone that's rolled over it and so it's this it's almost as if it's the entrance into the world of the dead itself and christ comes up to the entrance of this tomb and he's confronting in this scene what he's going to do on the cross he's going to confront death but it's not going to touch him death can't take the author of life the author of life must surrender to death. Which is why later in John, he's going to obsessively say, no one takes my life from me, I give it up. So, he comes face to face with death. He comes to the tomb. And we're going to see that he is the master of death. Which is amazing, because nobody, nobody has mastered death. Lazarus couldn't master death. And everybody before Lazarus, his, his parents couldn't master death. Their parents couldn't master death. Their parents, Adam and Eve, nobody could master death. Death has always taken the human at some point. And here Jesus comes to death. And he said to the Jews there, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So in other words, reader, pay attention. What Jesus is doing is a symbol of why he came, that they may know why you sent me. Um, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, I have heard, um, or I think I've even imagined myself, I'm not sure, things just are in your head, right? From wherever they come from. Um, that Lazarus is like chilling with God in heaven. It's like, ah, oh, done with the, the weariness of the world. And then, Lazarus, come back. It's like, what? No. It's like when you're having a good dream and you hear your alarm and you're desperately trying to find the snooze button so you don't actually wake up. Um, it's like, Lazarus like, no, go away. And then she's like, no, you're coming. And then he comes like, oh, man. Oh, look, these death rags on me. And that is not at all what's happening here. Lazarus would not be in the presence of God here. Based upon the story of the Bible up to this point, Lazarus is precisely where no human wants to be, no matter how righteous. So the Psalms cry out in desperation, let me not go to Sheol. That's the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. In Greek, it's Hades. There's a desperation. David says, like, no one praises you in Sheol. It is a place of, the Jews wrote, of dust and ashes where basically your thirst is never quenched and your hunger is never satisfied. We see also the parable of the, um, in Luke 16, I want to say, of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man goes to Hades. And he says, I just want a drop of water. I'm so desperate. I need help here. Like, it's just a place of, you're, you're, this is what death is. It's the, like, wanting to breathe, but you're dead. You can't breathe. The wanting to eat, but you're dead. You can't eat. 
This is Sheol, and everyone dreaded it. It's the realm of death itself. Death is the Lord, and death has received everybody into this place and lets nobody out of it, because death is king over sinners. Understand? This is where Lazarus is. This, by the way, um, the, the first pictures of this comes from Genesis chapter 3, after an Adam and Eve sin, and God warned him, if you do this, you will die. And so, um, uh, you, because you have done this, he says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly, you shall go. That's a state. That's not a statement of how snakes lost their legs. Okay. That's just a really poor way of reading scripture. This is about this creature who had power and authority is now thrown down. You're thrown down to the ground. You've lost your position. Um, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, that's really important. We imagine that's just an an image of a serpent slithering. Of course, the serpent's just going to keep eating dust because he's slithering in the dust. That's not what this is saying. It's saying, if you want to know how to read it, it tells us how to read it because... um, But in verse 19, we are told how to read dust. He tells Adam later in verse 19, Adam, you are dust and to dust you shall return. That doesn't mean that Adam is going to become little particles that now the serpent is inhaling while he's slithering around. It means that Adam is going to die. You once didn't exist. I gave you existence and purpose. You have rebelled against this purpose. So now you don't exist for that which I made you for. So you're going to go from non-existence. I made you. Now you have existence. Now you've rebelled against it. So now you have non-existence. You're going to die. So what happens to the dead? He's giving the dead over. The dust is given over to the serpent. Dust you shall eat, he tells the serpent. The dead are now in your control, serpent. So who is the Lord of the dead? The devil is the Lord of the dead. He's been given the dead. This is who the dead belong to because sin transfers us over to his domain. And he rules us with death. The one thing we can't, these are chains we cannot break out of. So Lazarus has gone to the dust. Lazarus hears Lazarus come out. Now in Hades, in Sheol, in the realm of the dead, these gates are shut. No one gets out without death's permission. But here a voice comes booming through the gates. Lazarus and death can't stop him. A voice has subdued him. The gates swing open for Lazarus, and he walks out. This is the miracle of bringing someone back to life that we don't think through. Christ has authority over that which no one has had authority. And so the dead man, where where did we drop off? Oh yeah, verse 44. The man who had died came out. See the emphasis? The man who had died, the man who was now a slave to the Lord of death was freed. He came out. There was no struggle. There was no deal. Christ said it. 
and Lazarus came. So he didn't come out. Man, I was just getting to why God allows evil in the world. He's about to answer that, and he called me forth. That's not at all what Lazarus is going through. He's like, that was a terrible place. Now, the righteous, of course, the Bible hints at that they are comforted in this place. It's not like he was suffering, but he was not happier than he was in life. Um, Lazarus comes out and realize, how do you see Jesus now? You're the body of the voice that freed me from that tyranny? I mean, how, it makes sense why in the next chapter, if you read on, Lazarus hosts a feast for Jesus. By the way, brothers and sisters, don't miss this. The one who calls him out of death holds a feast with him. We do this every week. We're going to do it in a moment. Did it just hit you, Addy, or are you okay? <laughs> I would like to think he was like, whoa, that was cool, but probably not what you're saying. Um, the man who had died came out. Now, his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips. So I would like to imagine he comes out and prostrates himself right before the, uh, the authority over death. But he's bound. We don't get to see him do that. He's bound with the, with, the, with the strips of death. So his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Okay. Um, wow. Okay. I was struck in this passage with the fact that Jesus gives three commands Uh, There's three actions, three calls to action here, two of which require us to do something and only one of which he does it. So it starts with take away the stone in verse 39. Take away the stone. Remove it. Literally in the Greek. I I had to check. I want to check because I didn't know if it meant like roll the stone away. It doesn't. It just means literally remove something. So it's like it was used of the man who was lowered on the bed uh, before Jesus, the paralytic. And he said, rise, take your bed and go home. It's to remove something. See, he's taking up and taking it out of that house. Uh, Take the stone away. He wants the stone removed from being a hindrance. He wants to look death in the eye and say, I own this person. Come out. So, but he doesn't say, he does not say, step back. I'm going to move the stone. Nor does he with his word move the stone. He requires the community around Lazarus to do the work of moving the stone away. And when Lazarus comes forth, Jesus doesn't unbind Lazarus. Lazarus doesn't unbind Lazarus. The community around Lazarus is commanded to unbind Lazarus. The only, that's, so that's the second command Jesus gives, unbind him. The only one Jesus does himself is um, in uh, whatever verse it is, when he says, oh, verse 43, Lazarus, come out. That's the one he does. Because that's the work of salvation. That's Christ's job. But everything else. He can't say, come forth into life if we're going to keep the stone between us and him. He doesn't have that say. He asks us to move the barrier. Remove the stone. Take it away. 
And that's not just roll it over. It's get rid of this. We must confront the things in our lives that we put up because we are terrified of the power of the Son of God or we are ashamed of the sins that we carry and think no one can love me or heal me or because we would rather do things easier than the way he calls us to. There are numerous ways that we put up a barrier. It might even be religious deeds. Adam and Eve put on fig leaves. These must come off. These must be removed. We must allow the stench the people were afraid of coming forth, we must let it air out. Here I am. We must say I need salvation before he can say come out. He's not going to move that stone. You must move that stone. Then he will say, come out, my child. Come have life. So then we get to come out, like Adam and Eve coming out of the trees. God's like, where are you? Come on out. I'm adding that part. It's kind of implied in his tone. Where are you? Uh, they came out still covered up and they weren't saved. They are corrupted and like, well, we have this opportunity to be restored and then we can come out into life and commune again. Adam and Eve never got to eat from the tree, but Lazarus comes out and he eats with Christ in chapter 12. He eats from the tree of life with Christ. Isn't that cool? Humanity restored. Uh, the last thing Jesus says is unbind him and let him go. I love this because in verse 44, unbind him and let him go. Salvation is not complete just because Christ calls you from death to life. This is what Eugene Peterson uses. The metaphor he uses is this is birth. We are very good as evangelicals of bringing birth to people. We want, we're like midwives, a church of midwives. Like we want to bring salvation to people. We want to bring them to life. We want to reborn them, rebirth them. I don't know how to say it, but we want them to be born again. We're not very good at growing people up because when you're born, you have to grow up. This is what Christ is inviting them to is, okay, I called him to life. Now it's the community. And who's reading the, the gospel of John? the church. It's the community that must let him walk, that must let him be free from the markings of death that have held him so that he can actually move and not be a zombie. It's us who must do this with one another and for one another. And in our own lives, we must unwrap the doings of death. This is a necessity. And this is why you'll talk to some people and you'll get two different responses from people. Are you saved? The majority of people would probably say, absolutely. Look at the cross. I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. I am saved. But I would look at that and say, I know. I know he did that for me, but I'm still wrapped in a lot of sin. This is not the salvation promised me. I believe he started my salvation but I think he wants me to start walking out in it. So I would say I am saved and I'm being saved. Every day, I can deepen my salvation with more liberty. Growing up, taking off the wrappings of death. So, toilet paper. This is the worst stuff. There it goes. Okay. We live with these wrappings of death. And this is what, since we've been going into non-existence, we've lived these lives where we say, 
oh my goodness, I'm nothing. I fear the end of life. I want to be remembered for something. I want my life to be meaningful. So what we begin to do is we begin to wrap ourselves with accomplishments. Uh, How many of us are happy that we've done something in our lives? If it's figuring out how to bake sourdough or figuring out how to defeat the thing that's been messing with our immune system, or if it's starting a business or taking over a business or being a CEO of something or a boss and having the name boss, or um, (laughs) it's not very many people in the world that can claim that, Um, we begin to claim these things about ourselves, right? Because it's like, wow, I, I was invisible in my sin, but now I start to feel visible. I'm making something for myself. And all the while, the devil's like, yeah. Keep focusing on your education and where you graduated from and keep on talking about how, many, how great your kids turned out and how great your marriage is, even though you're totally lying. And keep on letting people know that you're a Dodger fan because the Angels really aren't doing it and you like to side with winners. And keep letting... I'm a little venom there. Um, and keep, <laughs> and uh, keep on letting people know like, that you're into this and that and that these are your hobbies and... Okay, you get the picture. Like, there's all these ways we project ourselves. We want people to see ourselves as something. And then what happens is somebody says, Oh, but I graduated from. And now you gotta protect what you said. No, mine's, but did you get a master's? I got a doctorate. Well, are you using it? Uh huh. That's what I thought. And so we start getting competitive because we gotta say, No, don't take my visibility away. This is what makes me somebody. And this is what the whole world is after, is we're after the wrappings of death to try to make ourselves somebody when all Christ is saying, I'm going to make you somebody. I'm going to make you the person you're supposed to be. I'm going to call you forth. And then the church exists to stop playing the game of, well, we have this many people at our church, or we believe these, you know, these doctrines make us unique to these guys because these guys are stupid and they don't understand how the Bible works, or we are side with this denomination, or like there's so many different ways that we try to different, make ourselves visible. And the devil's like, yeah, I got them focusing on the wrong thing. They're wrapped in my finger here. And Christ is telling us, if I called you to life and I'm giving you life and I am your life, then it's time to let all these things go. It's time to die to the things that are going to die when you die. The only thing that's going to last forever is who we are in Christ. And the church... Worship is the unwrapping of these. Receiving communion, Christ gives us grace to unwrap these things and gives us life. He makes us visible. Prayer every day unwraps these things. Practicing fasting of various kinds shows us where we're dependent on these wrappings and says, get rid of these. Uh, Relationships with people in a church that you don't necessarily like, oh, they show you and they help you unwrap these things. And the people we love too, they help us unwrap these things um, this is the Christian life. Is this a struggle? Yes, because it's hitting us in the places we've invested too much in. And God's saying, it's time to unbind them and let them go. Let my people go. Let my people live as the image of God, not the image of their accomplishments or who they want to be seen as. This is what Holy Week is about. He's calling us forth and we must shed the rags and say, make us grown up Christians, O oh Lord. Let us be the witnesses of your death and resurrection because of who we are, not what we are. Um, who we are being Christ, not what we are because this is what I've done. Um, so we must remove the stone. 
Christ will call us into life, but then we must unbind the wrappings that remain in order to grow up, to continue in sanctification, to begin to share in union with him. And then we will find ourselves seated, like Lazarus, at the table with him frequently. The only difference is we will we will die. I'm not promising you you're going to live on this earth forever. But you don't go to the devil's lair anymore. Christ has said no one has to go there anymore. We get to go into his presence now. Amen. And when he gives us our bodies back, we're going to live forever. And there's going to be no wrappings. Like Adam and Eve, they didn't have clothing before their fig leaves. We don't even know what they were clothed in. They just suddenly realized they were naked when they sinned. And it's believed they were clothed in the glory of God's light. That's, that is receiving the nature of God upon yourself. Being clothed in his glory, that's what we get to be. So my goodness, please get rid of those rags. This is what we're trying to grow in every day on this earth. Oh, Lord, give us grace and mercy. Help us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen.